0: To remain is to win. In children's games like Crack the Whip, Knockout, Red Rover, Foursquare, Hacky Sack, or a whole list of other games, as your competitors are whittled down one by one, victory becomes that much closer. In the adult world, remaining might look a little different. Remaining could take on a number of different scenarios, making it through competitive job interviews, surviving troubled times, keeping family ground in your own name, or living independently when your kids try to convince you it's time to move to the home. To remain is to win, usually. It's true in military combat. If at the end of the day, you occupy the portion of land that's in dispute, you remain, you win, usually. To remain is to win, usually, but not always. Take for example, the Japanese soldier Hiro Onada, who remained in his position for nearly three decades after world war ii ended when search parties came to get him and relieve him of his duty he wouldn't believe them he was told never to surrender and he kept his orders until his commanding officer personally came to rescind them 29 years after the war had ended he remained but did he win i don't think so if you are interviewing for a promotion you make it all the way through all the interviews, at the end of all the interviews, you still remain in your own position, did you win? If you're the last surviving member of your high school class, you remain, but did you win? Or if you're arguing with someone to the point that they leave and the relationship is shattered and irreparable, what have you really won? To remain is to win, usually, but not Always. Remaining can be an indicator of winning at times, but sometimes to remain is foolish, and not only can it be foolish, but it can also be fatal. That would prove true for the people of Jerusalem as much as they refused to admit it. These people had escaped the Babylonian deportations in 605 BC and then again in 597, convinced themselves that they remain in the land because they are the real winners, They're not the losers or the traitors like those other people who have left, but they have remained, and so they are at right with God. The Lord had a message for those people still in the land, and it was shown and explained to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 24, and today that message will be explained to you. I invite you to open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 24. I'll be reading the whole chapter, verses 1 through 10. Jeremiah chapter 24 Verses 1 through 10. I'll invite you to stand out of respect for God's word if you're able to. Reading in Jesus' name. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the officials of Judah with the craftsmen and smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me. Behold, two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs. And the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten due to rottenness. Then the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs, the good figs, very good, and the bad figs, very bad, which cannot be eaten due to rottenness. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, thus says the Lord God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the captives of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them again into this land. And I will build them up and not overthrow them, and I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, and they will return to me with their whole heart. But like the bad figs which cannot be eaten due to rottenness, indeed, thus says the Lord, so I will abandon Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials." and the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land and the ones who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will make them a terror and an evil for all the kingdoms of the earth as a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all the places where I scatter them. I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence upon them until they are destroyed from the land which I gave to them and their forefathers. Father God, these are your words and your word is true. We pray, Lord, that you would sanctify us in your truth here today, that you would work in our hearts the working that you desire to do today. Help us, Father, to worship you in spirit and in truth now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The text opens with the Lord showing Jeremiah something. He's got two baskets of figs. One basket of figs looked to be the first fruits of the harvest. They're the freshly ripened, what you were waiting for, ready to eat, and now they are freshly picked. The other basket didn't have near the same appeal. Its contents are rotten. There's nothing redeemable about these figs. You can't do anything with rotten figs. They aren't good for anything, and yet here they are in this basket, next to a basket of perfectly fine, good figs. It's interesting to note the other detail that's given about these figs in verse 1 of our text, they are set before the temple of the Lord, which begs the question, why have they been set before the temple of the Lord? Are they offerings? The people's commentary suggests that they are offerings, and it could be that they are offerings, but it isn't said one way or the other in the text, so we can speculate at best. However, this idea of these baskets of figs being an offering to the Lord seems to fit with what the Lord is revealing to Jeremiah here. There are two baskets set before the Lord. One is pleasing and acceptable, and the other is utterly unacceptable. And here we see them, again set before the Lord. Who would set such a worthless basket before the Lord? Now we're still in the midst of the harvest season, so some farmers are pretty busy bringing loads of grain to the elevator, and other people are accepting these, gra- these loads of grain at the elevator, and they test the grain. They test the grain to make sure that the grain is not rotten, but that it's acceptable. I don't know of any farmer that would bring one whole truckload of good grain that meets all the measurements, all the marks that they need to meet, and then the next truckload, they bring an utterly rotten load of grain. No one would do that. Why? Because they know it's not going to be accepted. It's worthless. And yet here, we see a group of people who are bringing an offering to the Lord. One is pleasing and acceptable, and one is an offering to the Lord. It's utterly worthless, but hey, it's good enough for the Lord, at least. We did our job. There's a distinction that's being made here between the good figs and the rotten figs. There are only two baskets. There are a good one, There's a good one, an acceptable one, and a rotten one. So what does this mean? What's the meaning behind the figs here in Jeremiah 24? The Lord explains in verse 5 and 8. It says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the captives of Judah, whom I have set out of this place into the land of the Chaldeans. But like the bad figs, which cannot be eaten due to rottenness, indeed, thus says the Lord, so I will abandon Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all of his officials, and the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, the ones who dwell in the land of Egypt. The figs exemplify here two categories of people, and these categories matter. They matter for eternity. How does the Lord regard these categories here in Jeremiah 24? One category is good, and the other is to be abandoned. The fate of the figs matters. What will happen to these figs? What will happen to the people? The good figs are identified as those whom the Lord has sent out of Judah into the land of the Chaldeans. These are the people whom the Lord has brought out of his land and brought them into captivity, brought them into exile. This is what the Lord says of them. I will set my eyes on them for good, And I will bring them again to this land. And I will build them up and not overthrow them. And I will plant them and not pluck them up. And I will give them a heart to know me. For I am the Lord. And they will be my people. And I will be their God. For they will return to me with their whole heart. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be nice to have the Lord God Almighty set his eyes on you for good? the author of life, the creator of the universe, to watch over you for your good, to have your best interest in mind. I will set my eyes on them for good. And it gets better. The Lord continues to speak. He says that they will return. This is the sovereign God who is speaking to his people here, declaring to them that they will be brought back to their land. He will bring them back. As a world powers war over power and dominion and authority, the Lord is behind the scenes accomplishing His purposes and keeping His promises. He says, I'm going to bring you back. Even better than returning home, though, is what the Lord is going to be doing inside of these people the inner working that the Lord is going to do. He says, And I'm going to give them a heart to know Him, to know me. Not only to know him, but to return to him, to dwell with him forever. They will be his people, and he will be their God by the working of God alone. They will be called and established by God and given hearts that return to the Lord, hearts drawn to the Lord, as opposed to dead hearts in active rebellion against the Lord. The other figs have a less glamorous future. The Lord says this of them, I will abandon the remnant of Jerusalem, I will abandon the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land and the ones who dwell in the land of Egypt, I will make them a terror and an evil for all the kingdoms of the earth as a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse, and all the places where I scatter them, I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence upon them until they are destroyed from the land which I gave them and to their forefathers." The remnant in Jerusalem will become a reproach and a proverb. The Lord's judgment will follow them wherever they go. They can run, they can hide, but they can't escape the Lord's judgment here. Even though they think they're safe living in the land. Even though they think they'll be safe if they go to Egypt and have the Egyptians cover them. <coughs> Excuse me. There will be no escaping the Lord's judgment. It sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? How can the Lord do that for the remnant in Jerusalem? After all, aren't these the people, aren't these the remnant that the Lord promised to keep and the remnant through whom he would send his Messiah? How could he abandon them? How could he treat these people so violently? The fate of the figs are drastically or is drastically different. One group is led to the Lord and the other is left by the Lord. There is no neutral option here. What determines the fate of the figs? Is it really as simple, as, and, simple as, and callous as a location or life experience, a thing that you've gone through in your life? To answer that, we need to inspect these figs here. What is it that makes the good figs so good? Is it because they're foreign figs from the fields of Babylon and they have been brought out of Jerusalem, harvested from a different field, and they're going to be brought back? No, that's not it. It's not because of location. Were they somehow a different variety of figs that proved to be a hardier crop? Was there a difference between those in captivity and those who stayed in the land? What made them pleasing and acceptable to the Lord? It's a question that we have to ask. Because we need to know what it is that makes one pleasing and acceptable to the Lord. More specifically, what makes us pleasing and acceptable to the Lord? One of the oldest conflicts in Scripture going back to the book of Genesis, shed some light on this discussion. The conflict between Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel were brothers. They were given different jobs, different vocations. One raised grain, the other raised livestock. Both of them brought their offerings to the Lord. One was pleasing in God's sight, and the other one was not pleasing. Abel's sacrifice pleased the Lord, Cain's didn't. And the book of Hebrews informs us that it wasn't anything about the nature of the sacrifice. It's not about the content of the sacrifice, but the difference here is faith. The issue here was faith. And the, issue, or the author of Hebrews writes that without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Likewise, the issue at stake with the figs is faith. Throughout Jeremiah's ministry, the Lord had faithfully called these people to himself. (coughs) Excuse me. He continued, even as his people willfully and scornfully rejected him, and they rejected his prophet. He watched as the people attempted to kill the messenger and completely disregarded his message. He sent sent in the Babylonians to escort people out of the land to take them into captivity, to get their attention. It was the Lord's doing. Yet the people in Jerusalem continued to ignore his calling, continued to ignore his prophets. In Jeremiah chapter 38, the Lord specifically warns his people in Jerusalem this message. He says, he who stays in this city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence but he who goes out to the Chaldeans will live and have his own life as booty and stay alive. The Lord desires to call these people to himself, and yet they continue to refuse. The decision to stay in Jerusalem, the decision to remain in the land, would prove to be fatal, and it was in direct opposition to what the Lord was calling them to do. See, the issue here is faith. And this issue of faith isn't the issue of having a generic belief. No, those who chose to stay in Jerusalem, they had a faith. They had a very uh, firm faith, a very devout faith. The problem was it was woefully and fatally misguided. Everyone has a faith. We all believe in something. But that faith needs to be further defined because generic, broad faith doesn't save anyone. Rather, the object of our faith is what saves, and the object of our faith matters. What we have faith in matters. For the ones who stayed in Jerusalem, the word of the Lord came to them to deliver a gracious promise of God. Come out from the city, and you will live. Stay in this city, and you will die. It's a pretty simple message. And the promises continued as the Lord promised to bring his people back into the land, to provide for them, and more importantly, to give them hearts to know him and to return to the Lord wholly. And yet they chose to cling to something else. They chose to believe in something else. They chose to believe in the fact that they have the presence of the Lord there in their midst. It's in Jerusalem. They could touch it if they wanted to, despite the fact that it was full of idols. They chose to go to their own handmade cisterns, the ones that were broken, that couldn't hold any water, thinking this will quench their spiritual thirst. They chose to trust in themselves. They trusted in their present circumstances. The Babylonians have gone away. They're not going to bother us anymore. We have the temple, and we have prophets who tell us what we want to hear. They trusted in the location. We're God's people and God's land. What can ever happen to us? They chose to trust in themselves. They trusted in their national pride. They had faith in their prophets who told them exactly what they wanted to hear and they refused to believe their desperate need when Jeremiah delivered it to them. Those same idols exist for us today. What is the object of our faith? In what or in whom are we trusting? Are we trusting in our own abilities? We sang in the first hymn, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. We can't. Are we trusting in our own ability to avoid sin in our lives, or our own ability to live decent lives, to live holy lives? Are we trusting in the events of our lives, the various things we can mark on our calendars and say, "This happened on this day, so I'm good to go." Are we trusting in what we have accomplished with our own hands? After all, we have here at abiding word, we have a constitution, we have a church, we have a congregation. We're doing pretty good. What do we have to fear? Are we trusting in our history? Saying, look at how far we've come. Now we have arrived. Is our faith in the Lord's ability to deliver us from all harm and danger secondary to our faith in America to provide these same things for us or for politicians to do these same things for us? Is our faith placed in a location or a circumstance? And if so, then we are no different than these rotten figs. And that warning which was delivered to these people in Jeremiah's day comes to us today. To those who reject the promises of the Lord, the time will come when he removes his gracious hand to abandon us. And the rest of eternity will be spent forever separated from Christ. The object of our faith matters. Not for a life of success and good health here on this earth, but it matters for all eternity. And if this is you today or if this is you tomorrow or some other day in the future, that you realize that I am trusting in me or trusting in other things more so than trusting in the Lord. And take heart because your fate is not sealed. Christ has come for you. And this message comes to you. To be a good fig is to have faith in the Lord and in his promises, which comes entirely as a gift by his grace. It's stated for us plainly in our confession, where it says, human beings cannot be justified before God by their own powers, by their own merits, or by their own works. But they are justified as a gift on account of Christ through faith when they believe that they are received into grace and that their sins are forgiven on account of Christ, who by his death made satisfaction for our sins. God reckons this faith, faith. As righteousness. Faith is necessary, yes, but the object of our faith matters. If we're trusting in ourselves, we're woefully misguided and fatally misguided. But as we trust in Christ, we can be comforted. And, brothers and sisters, God has set his eyes on you for good and for your good. And he has seen to your interests and has given us the greatest gift, which we so often spurn, for the simple truth that we'd rather have something else. We like where we are and, frankly, are content to stay. The Christ, the righteous branch foretold of in the previous chapter in Jeremiah, has come to be our righteousness, to fulfill the promise of God for you, to save you from your sins, to be the object of your faith, to be the one in whom, we, in whom believing, we will never be put to shame. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, Jeremiah says in chapter 17, and whose trust is the Lord. Remaining entrenched in a misguided faith will only ever lead to despair and destruction, which is the message that Jeremiah has for these people living and dwelling in Jerusalem. We're good to go. We're God's people. We have the temple. We are still that faithful remnant. It doesn't matter what else we believe in. We're here and we're good to go. And yet God tells them, no, that's not true. It's not what makes you faithful. That's not what saves you. That's not what delivers you. That's not what marks you as my people. What marks you as my people is faith and what I will do for you. For those who have left, and it's not too late for you to leave, for those who have left, I will bring them back into the land. For those who trust in my promise, I will call out to them. I will give them a new heart, a heart which fears me and loves me, a heart which follows after me, a heart which returns wholly to me. Remaining entrenched in a misguided faith will only ever lead to despair and destruction. However, remaining in Christ, our crucified and risen Lord, will lead us to everlasting life.